This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. So today we'll be discussing the main events for three different combat sports events. We had UFC Hinato Moikano versus the Korean zombie Chan Sung Jung. We had Bellator London, which was headlined by Degard Musasi versus Rafael Lovato Jr. And just so you guys know, he's an American. He's not Brazilian or Portuguese. So it's Rafael, not Rafael. And finally, we also had Bare Knuckle Fighting Championship 6, which was headlined by Pauli Malinaji versus Artem Lobov. So let's first start with Henato Moikano versus the Korean Zombie. Now, Zombie, unlike the name might imply, is more of a dangerous and violent counter-striker. Moikano is the more fleet-footed outfighter. Moikano is also two inches taller, but Ultimately, it was Zombie who won by TKO in 58 seconds of the fight. So, Paul, what did Zombie do right to win in such a quick fashion? So, breaking down the action in a 58-second fight is kind of tough, but it does allow us to examine certain things in details. So, Zombie starts off the fight in the orthodox stance, which no surprise there. He throws a jab into a low kick to remind Moikano of the threat coming from up top and below, something he hasn't done enough of in the past. It's interesting that despite his reputation as an all-action fighter, Chan Sung Jung has done a great job of developing patience and knowing when to mix in his technical strikes with the brawling mentality that he's now famous for. He's learned from Moikano's previous fight against Aldo that if you let Moikano lead, you can get a better sense of his combinations and try to pick apart the defensive holes. Now with Moikano, he tends to throw out multiple jabs and feints in order to try to get you to bite on them. But if you don't react at all, it becomes a little bit harder for him to read patterns and develop a strategy. Now, this is something that Zombie could have picked up while training with Eddie Cha, the striking coach at the MMA lab in Arizona. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's the same camp as Benson Henderson, a frequent training partner of Jung when he's in the States. Although to be fair, his catch and pitch method has been evident in his fight against both Bermudez and Yair Rodriguez. It's good to see that he's building upon that foundation further. Now, going back to the fight itself, a darting jab is blocked by Moicano, who responds instinctively with the left hook, one of his better strikes. However, Zombie is getting Moicano used to that reaction. Afterwards, a lazy left hook by Jung is easily seen by Moicano, who steps back and waits a second before responding with his own left jab, a reaction that Jung saw earlier with his first darting jab. Now, Jung quickly slips and lands a beautiful right overhand and left hook that drops Moicano, wasting no time in smelling blood. Jung pounced on Moicano as he's falling and followed him down with strikes. Now, Zombie gets stuck for a second in Moicano's attempted half guard, 
but he quickly manages to slide his knee through Moicano's hips when it's not defended properly, and he gets a full mount. Now from here, Moicano tries to buck Jung off, but ends up giving him his back, a terrible trade-off for someone who will gladly settle for finishing you with strikes. Now, Zombie is a bit too high on the back of Moicano, and instead of trying to finish the submission, he's forced to hold on to the chin of Moicano with his own arm to retain back control, and he realizes that he can still strike from here. Now, Jung flattens out Moicano's base while simultaneously hitting him with strikes, forcing Moicano to try and prove position or defend the blows. And after a few more unanswered strikes, the ref calls a stop to the fight at 58 seconds in the first round. Now, Zombie is now alternating between wins and losses in the UFC, but his fan-friendly style will guarantee that the fight will always be exciting no matter what. For what it's worth, Dana White has promised that the UFC will return to Korea with Zombie headlining, but it's not that he needs it. Since 2012, Zombie has headlined every fight he's been a part of, despite the long layoffs in between. How many of the fighters can say that? Tony Ferguson, for all his skills and talent, hasn't been able to accomplish such a feat. Sam, what did you see in the fight? So with a fight like this where somebody gets knocked out very quickly, more than the guy doing the knocking out, it's more interesting to study what the other guy did. Because when you have a quick knockout like this, it's more what you did wrong than what the other person did right. Because in a professional fight, this is rare for a reason. Because this shouldn't happen. You can lose a fight, but at the highest level, losing so quickly, something went wrong. So if you're going to fight Zombie, what game plan should you use? Well, for Moicano, it was initially about bouncing and fainting and getting into range. He was trying to do what someone like Max Holloway does really well, countering the counter-striker. So he was trying to draw out strikes from Zombie, then counter them. But that means you have to be ready to react very quickly. Also, this is not a style Moicano normally employs. In fact, to do this well, you need incredible speed, incredible defense, and an incredible chin. Moicano is good in all of these areas, but not incredible. Still, this was the early goings, and I think Moicano was in the process of trying to feel Zombie out and gauge his range. And even with the few shots Moicano threw out, Zombie was looking to counter. It reminded me a lot of a very old school UFC fight, John Lewis versus Jens Pulver, which also ended very quickly. Lewis was throwing out lazy jabs, and Pulver countered and finished them. And now with the modern meta counter fighting game of MMA striking, throwing out lazy jabs is incredibly dangerous. Moicano also stands up straight and wasn't moving his head offline and was in this fight leading very slowly. He was just slow and he got countered with a two piece from zombie while his slow jab was still extended. So while his arm is out, zombie hit him twice. But maybe Moicano would have won this fight if he didn't get caught right away. But with a dangerous counter-striker, you have to start out really cautious and very fast twitch. You have to be ready to move. Also, even though he was trying to draw out an attack, he didn't seem prepared to have his jab countered. You have to be ready to react very quickly and maybe Moicano's reactions would have been quick later in the round or in the second round, but it wasn't like that in the first minute. But if you're not ready to react quickly like that, then why move in? 
If you need to warm up, why not stay on the outside for a while or fight defensively initially? It was a really bizarre fight because the right cross is the most basic of counters. It's what you're always supposed to expect when you throw a jab. It's the basic lesson you see in every boxing movie. The beginner comes in aggressive and gets cracked with a right cross. So I wasn't surprised by Zombie because that's what you're supposed to do, but more so by Moicano. It looked like Zombie versus Mark Hominick. Like Moicano got to where he wanted to be right away, then got blindsided by what he wanted. He wanted to get into range, he wanted to draw strikes, and then he got knocked out by the strikes he drew out. I think because intellectually, the game plan might have been good. I mean, he's at American Top Team, and they're great at game plans. But maybe he's not the guy to execute that game plan, or the game plan needs to be tailored to a fighter's strengths and weaknesses. And now with Ortega, Aldo, and Zombie all figuring out the key to beating Moicano is to hit him while he's trying to hit you, everyone will be looking to implement that on Moicano. Unless he can adapt. Many fighters' careers spiraled quickly in MMA. And it's not always because they're shop-worn or had to go off of PEDs. Because what's even more dangerous than all of that is getting figured out. Why is the mixing of martial arts so dangerous? Because you don't know what to expect. But if everyone knows what to expect with you, you just lost a lot of what makes MMA dangerous. Now, somebody in our Facebook group was talking about how maybe perhaps this is going to set up Zombie for a title shot soon, but the featherweight division is so stacked. Zombie might still need four more fights. So before the fight in the UFC's featherweight ranking, Zombie was at 12 and Moicano was at five. So with the events that have transpired, it's reasonable to assume that Zombie is going to be in top 10. So giving him an opponent in the top 10 makes sense. Now, to your point, maybe a title shot is too much too soon, considering he's alternating wins and losses. But there are some interesting fights that can get fans excited and could be a winnable path for Jung to the UFC featherweight title. Featherweight does not like the light heavyweight division where you can win two fights and be in line for the title. He still has Yair Rodriguez ahead of him. He has Volkanovski, Frankie Edgar. There's so many guys ahead of him. So it's just a crazy stacked division. And unfortunately, beating two or three guys is just not enough. But that means on their way up to the title, we're going to get a lot of exciting fights. One of the fights that interests me is possibly facing off against Josh Emmett. Now, Josh Emmett is coming off an exciting come from behind knockout over Michael Johnson. Now, he's scheduled to face off against Mursad Bektik, so maybe Zombie can fight the winner of that. Jeremy Stevens is an exciting fighter, so a matchup with him can prove to be exciting. And he could also rematch Aldo and Yair. But if we're looking about new matchups, I am interested in seeing how Jung would handle the boxing of Calvin Cater, the length and grappling of Zabit, and the submission game of Ortega. So there's some exciting fights for Jung that I'd love to see. The division is just stacked with killers. Look at all the names we named, and there's still a bunch more we haven't even named. But it is what it is, and they're just going to have to have a Royal Rumble and just scrap it out and see who makes it, because whoever does make it to the title shot really does deserve it. Now let's move on to the main event for Bellator London, which was Gegard Mousasi defending his middleweight title against 
Rafael Lovato Jr. Now, this on paper looked a lot like Rory McDonald versus Neiman Gracie. And it sort of did look like that with some key differences. First off, Lovato used more feints, especially at the beginning. Rather than doubling up with the jab like Gracie did, he threw a lot of right leads. And he circled. This was a pattern throughout the first half of the fight. Circling, feinting, throwing rights, changing directions, making Musashi chase him. Also, the circling helped defensively as he was doing a good job circling away from the power strikes. And even when he got hit, he wasn't getting hit flush. So with this game plan, what he was doing was making Musashi collapse his own space rather than chasing Musashi and have Musashi just back up and defend. So rather than using your strikes to set up the takedown like Gracie did, Lovato was using his strikes to bait Musashi to give chase. From there, Lovato was able to clinch and look for takedowns or use that closing of space to look for a stiff arm knee pick which he either found success with outright or he used to set up scrambles and half guard sweeps. Once on the ground and Lovato was on top, Lovato used leg pummeling, knee slices, and prevented Musasi from getting butterfly hooks, all to pass the guard. He would even grab Musasi's leg and put it around his back because basically he'd rather have Musasi play close guard or even open guard rather than butterfly. From top, what was different was, rather than diving for submissions, Lovato was more focused on passing and maintaining control, and then scoring damage. If a submission is there, so be it, but don't lose position. And once your opponent is down, don't let him back up. Another interesting thing Lovato did was to take wrestling shots, whether they be good or bad. And if he got it, good. If he didn't, kind of like Damian Maya. He went for half guard and looked to sweep. There was a lot of Damian Maya in Lovato's MMA grappling game, much more so than Neiman Gracie. So that's another difference. If your takedown doesn't work, rather than going immediately from A to Z, meaning going for the submission, go from A to B, which is the next step in the takedown. So the emphasis being keep committing to being on top. Avoid being on bottom if at all possible. No close guard or full guard if you can avoid it. But in round three, everything was going according to game plan. Lovato got another takedown using the stiff arm to knee pick. Then he passed to mount. Then he took the back. Then he went for the choke and got reversed and ended up in close guard. Now, rather than looking to get out of close guard, Lovato looked for submissions and sweeps. And that's one thing Gracie was better at protecting himself from full guard. But insisting on staying there against Musasi meant eating some big ground and pound. On the ground, against an untrained person, perhaps full guard is the safest place. But against trained MMA fighters at the highest level, close guard means, yeah, maybe you're not going to get finished, but you're going to take a lot of damage. What helped Lovato a bit here in round three and even four was Musasi kept letting Lovato off the hook. Like, rather than damaging Lovato until the end of round three, Musasi just gets up. And I think that's a big part of why Musasi didn't get the decision. He didn't keep hurting Lovato every opportunity that he had. Because in round four, Lovato was still hurt from the previous ground and pound. 
and Lovato was getting stalked and cornered and even got dropped against the fence. Then Lovato was resorting to flopping into guard. And Musasi's best moment in this fight was from on top from Lovato's full guard. But instead of doing that again, Musasi would back up and give Lovato a break and a chance to get up and back into the fight. There was even a time Musasi caught a Lovato kick and held it to kick Lovato at will. Then he just let it go. All that gave Lovato a time to recover and come back in round five. In a different scenario, Lovato could have been finished or be coming out to round five with way more damage. Lovato, however, made some championship level adjustments. Now realizing the fight was close and now that Musasi wisened up and wasn't chasing him, but instead stalking him and picking him apart on the feet, Lovato comes forward in the last round, coming in with wide shifting hooks while moving his head off the center line. I don't think any of those punches landed, but he gets in on Musasi and safely pins him up against the fence. Then takedown again, pass, then the back. One cool thing Lovato does here to maintain back control is he laces his arm through the far arm of Musasi's, kind of like a half Nelson, and he uses it to maintain control and keep the angle, which he lost previously in round three. It's the same idea as when you use a half Nelson to maintain mount. But I haven't seen this technique much in MMA. Now having learned from what happened last time when he took the back, rather than looking for the choke, Lovato is only focused on maintaining control and hitting Musasi. And with that fifth round adjustment, Lovato wins a majority decision, becoming the new Bellator middleweight champion. But one judge did score a draw because it definitely was a close and competitive fight. So Paul, tell me about Musasi. So as I wrote in the preview for the Musasi versus Lovato fight, I mentioned that if Musasi is going to lose, it's going to look similar to how he did against Slamenko and his fight against Lyoto Machida in the UFC. Because he's a slow starter and at times he doesn't pick up the pace, if the opponent decides to turn it up at any point and never let their foot off the gas, Musasi is known to take a passive role. And if an opportunity doesn't present itself, he might not go for it. Now, as far as the fight itself, Musasi starts off in the orthodox position and you can immediately see the difference in approach between him and Lovato. While Musasi paused tentatively and is flat-footed as he usually is in the early rounds, Lovato is bouncing around and using speed to set up in-and-out strikes. Now, it's also veteran savvy of Musasi knowing that it's a five-round fight and he needs to preserve energy. Now, Musasi isn't setting up a lot of strikes and is happy to stalk Lovato early on. When he does strike, Musasi will strike heavy and try to hurt Lovato. In an interesting turn, Lovato engages Musasi in the clinch in round one. The reason why I say it's interesting is because in his previous fights against both Salter and Honeycutt, Lovato has had trouble in the clinch. So it's nice to see that he's working on it and genuinely improving. Now, after disengaging from the clinch, Musasi makes the mistake of staying heavy on the lead foot. Now, Lovato recognizes this early, and while he's moving laterally, he sets up a beautiful knee pick while pushing on the lead shoulder to get a pretty smooth takedown, and this is a favorite of Frankie Edgar. 
Musasi's submission defense is on point, but if you're defending a submission, it means you're not winning a fight. Musasi's striking is still a bit labored in round two, and a stuffed takedown leads to a sprawl by Musasi. Instead of trying to disengage and get back to striking range, he hangs out a bit too long and gets tripped down by Lovato. While pinned down against the fence, Musasi takes his time in getting up to do the wall walk, but the level of urgency isn't there, especially in a fight where he's the champion. Even though Musasi is able to counter-grapple Lovato during the takedown attempts, he hangs around too long and he'll get into extended grappling exchanges against Lovato. He does a good job of defending and smothering Lovato's hands while they're in the clinch, but it's not something that will score points in the judges' scorecards and especially not to win a fight. Now, when Musasi does jab, he hits Lovato very cleanly. However, he still absorbs too much strikes against Lovato, even if they're not too damaging. So it'll come down to what the judges see as activity versus damage and what they score that towards. Now, the reaction timing of Musasi isn't necessarily bad, but he's not showing enough urgency. It's frustrating because you know he's capable of turning it up at any time. In round three, Musasi literally defends by using the least amount of energy possible. And it gives Lovato a chance to sweep Musasi and eventually mount him and take his back. Now, while Musasi is defending, he spins around and ends up in Lovato's guard. And he attacks viciously from here despite the repeated triangle attempts. Now, Musasi ends a third round by unloading on Lovato and possibly stole the round with that. This kind of urgency should have been used towards the end of every round so that he finishes strong and could possibly steal the round in the judges' scorecards. But perhaps Musasi was injured and he knew that he had to conserve his energy. Now, round four shows Musasi showing a bit more aggression and pressure, and this is causing Lovato to overreact. Musasi lands great shots Lovato's body to tire him out faster, and you could also see that Musasi starts fainting a bit more and it allows him to set up his right hand. Now, Musasi ducks under Lovato's strike in round four, and you could see that a brutal uppercut drops Lovato, and he attempts to swarm him on the ground. Now, knowing that this might not be the best of position, and a brief scare, he lets Lovato stand back up, and he opts to jab Lovato some more. Unfortunately, in the final round, Musasi plays tentative early while Lovato comes out aggressively, knowing that he lost that last round. A double leg into a trip takes Musasi down against the fence, and this gives Lovato a chance to take Musasi's back, and Musasi is spent playing defense in a very critical round five. After knowing that he could hurt Lovato, Musasi allowed Lovato to set up the tempo and be the aggressor. Once Lovato got the fight to the ground, the passiveness of Musasi really played a part in him being content just playing defense instead of actively trying to get up and hurt. Now, this was always a criticism levied against Musasi going back to his strike force days when he lost to King Mo. And as I mentioned, when he was in the UFC and he was handily outstruck by Lyoto Machida. Now, at least in his Bellator debut against Alexander Shlomenko, you can point to an eye injury that Musasi suffered early on that forced him to fight tentatively. But in this fight, it just looked like it could be more of a habit that Musasi has. And it's something that he's going to have to figure out if he runs into the same problem again. But after 50 so fights, 
in his career. I don't know if this is something that he can fix. So moving on to BKFC 6, not to be confused with the World Bare Knuckle Fighting Federation. Yeah, that's the shady org that Boss Rutan is associated with. This is the more legitimate one where people are actually getting paid. And it looks like a lot of the fighters from the WBKFF are now moving over to the BKFC. So the main event for Bare Knuckle Fighting Championship 6 was Pauli Malinaji versus Artem Lobov. And for those of you who don't know the rules of BKFC, it's basically modified boxing with no gloves. And the ring is an actual circle. And also the referees are much more lenient about clinching and the types of strikes you can throw. Seems like elbows can slide so long as it doesn't look intentional. And backfists and even spinning backfists, also okay if the referee doesn't want to break the action. Because the emphasis seems to be on continuous fighting. So the rules are much more lax just to keep the fight going. Now, in the fight, Malanaji was physically much smaller than Lobov. Lobov was also the southpaw, but he tended to switch stances, especially to cover distance, since his arms are so notoriously short. Now, Paul, was there anything that surprised you about this fight? I think the only thing that was surprising was the fact that I expected more, but didn't get it. And when the fight was first announced, Pauli Malinaji isn't high on anyone's list of people who would do well in a bare knuckle setting. This is a man who has seven knockout wins in a career of 44 fights. <laughs> His other 29 wins were by decision. And Artem Lobov has zero knockout wins in his 13 and 15 MMA record, unless you count TKO and then he's got four. But if we're being generous, he did knock out Chris Grutzmacher while he was on tough. So I think it was safe to assume that no one was going to get Rumble Johnson in this fight. So overall observations and notes I had, Malinaji was definitely outboxing Lobov. His veteran savvy was apparent. And surprisingly, even in things like getting the clinch and defending in the clinch. And also, strategically, he did what a professional boxer would probably do, which is to throw a lot to the body to protect his hands. And he was jabbing and slipping and countering. Also, one sweet thing that Malinaji showed was, you'll hear commentators in MMA say when you fight someone with the opposite stance, that it's all about the outside foot position. But that's not a hard rule. And Malinaji frequently got the inside foot position. And actually, he seemed to prefer that. He used it to land his jab or his one-two, then slip out to his right, away from Lobov's left straight. Then, just as everyone predicted, Malinaji broke his hands in the second half of the fight, and he stopped throwing punches. And that's the story of Pauli Malinaji and his whole career. He was cursed with brittle hands. He's actually a pretty good boxer, but he can't hit hard because his hands keep breaking. So Lobov won by aggression and volume. He won the unanimous decision. There isn't too much to say about this kind of fighting because it's still in the early days, so there's not a lot of technical things to break down. But as far as fight study goes, the takeaway from this fight is you can counter a lot of southpaw tactics with a good jab, and the inside foot position is okay if you're fast, you throw really straight, and you're prepared to slip and exit. 
one of the things that I did like that Artem Lobov actually did was the stance switching. And this is something that Johnny Hendricks used to do quite frequently in his MMA career in order to cover distance quickly. He knocked out Martin Katman this way. He hurt Carlos Condit. And he was actually able to get on the inside of GSP using this tactic. And it was clear that when Artem Lobov did this against Pauli Malinaji, Malinaji had trouble adjusting and he wasn't able to slip out in time. And this is when a lot of the punches that hurt Malinaji occurred outside of the clinches. Do you think this is kind of an adaptation for fighters with short arms? Because you just mentioned Johnny Hendricks, who's also notoriously very short in reach. I think it's a good way to cover distance, but by no means should it be your only strategy because it's fairly easy to counter if you keep doing it over time. The opponent can slip out. He can try to time it for a takedown. But if you're able to use it in conjunction with either your foot movement, your feints, as well as slipping, yeah, it's great. But in a five-round two-minute-per-round fight, there's not a whole lot you can do if the guy happens to do a mid-round and you have no answer. Yeah, Artem Lobov is not somebody who's going to like double or triple his jabs and get to you. He just doesn't have that reach. So from throwing his initial punch and then taking that wide uh, stand-switching step and making his other side the lead, his ability to hit you just doubles in distance. So something to not rely upon all the time, like Paul said, but if you are somebody with a shorter reach, it is something that you can use to close the distance. And maybe once you do, don't keep doing that. (laughs) Fight from the inside, but maybe that is a tactic that we're going to see more MMA fighters and maybe even bare-knuckle fighters using if they have the reach disadvantage. So Sam, is there any fighter you would like to see in bare-knuckle fighting? So if you watch the whole event, Johnny Bedford, I guess, won some kind of championship with them. They asked him, who do you want to fight next? Anybody you want to call out? And he didn't really have a name because I feel the same way as him. I don't even know who fights bare knuckle. I don't know who they have signed. I don't know who's interested in this. So I don't even know who could come in or who the contenders are. I, <laughs> do they have a roster of like 10 people? Is it 20? Is it five? Is, is everybody signed for one five deals? Are there people that they're looking to sign up? I don't even know who'd be interested in this other than kind of like the MMA's version of that 30 for 30 ESPN documentary Broke, where in Broke, it's all the NBA, Major League Baseball, NFL guys who are now broke. The MMA version of all the broke fighters, it seems like they go to BKFC because also I don't like watching it that much. It's just too gory. Like even in a fight where there's not that many punches landed and thrown, they just get so cut up like Polly and Artem. They barely hit each other and they were both so cut up. It's just gruesome. If you fight even five times with them, you are going to be permanently disfigured. So I don't even know if I want somebody to fight BKFC. Like if I like somebody, why would I want them to fight in BKFC? Or if you don't like somebody, you might want them to fight in BKFC. It's like the epic handshake meme. And one side could be MMA washouts. And the other could be boxing contenders. And then they meet at BKFC to determine who's the best non-champions to ever compete. You want to see BKFC and all these would-be like 
bare knuckle fighting and and just kind of more gory fighting style just disappear and not be able to sign old MMA fighters, have a union and have a pension. <laughs> and you will see these guys like not fighting those things anymore. That whole market of desperate former MMA fighters will just disappear. They'll just be retiring and just be okay. And and also, if you have a union while they're fighting, they're going to get paid so much more and have health insurance and other things like that, that you won't need something like this. It, this can only happen because you don't have protection for fighters and it's just fucking Hunger Games. So you're always going to get these new promotions coming out. It's just MMA combat sport Hunger Games where people will fight for food. <laughs> it's like bump fights all over again. And on that note, Paul, you have anything you're working on? So right now I'm working on my own three-piece combo of a preview between John Jones, Diago Santos, Holly Holm versus Amanda Nunez, and Mr. Three-Piece himself, Jorge Masvidal versus Ben Askren. Is that all on the same card? All on the same card. Damn. You know, sometimes you got to sit through some weird Bellators and BKFCs and MMA Hunger Games just to get to a pretty good card. You know what? I take that back. I actually want to see Jorge Masvidal versus Ben Askren in Bare Knuckle. I want to see how that goes. <laughs> there you go. That's your philosophical thought experiment for the day. Just imagine how that would go in your mind because they do allow a lot of clinching. With that said, so long and goodbye. Later. Later.